listening to Law and Gospel on this Thursday, February the 27th in the year of our Lord 2020. And it's a Rumination Thursday, which means with us we have our good friend, Reverend Wes Reimnitz. Hi, Wes. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I was up your area yesterday. I'm going back up in that area again Snow wasn't a factor. A couple of places a little icy, but outside of that, looks pretty good. Yeah, they're clear up today, especially. They do a good job. They do a good job. And now we need to do a good job. The Concordia Journal is the official publication of Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. And I have in my hand, and I know Wes also does, the winter 2020 uh, edition and it has got what I consider to be an excellent article by Timothy E. Seleska entitled The Gospel-Centered Christian and the reason that we're bringing it up is that many of these articles are written from a pastoral point of view and therefore they have words and I talked about this at the last Bible study I did. I said, do you know the difference between the formal and material principles of theology, or do you understand the difference between the normative authority and the causative authority of the gospel? And of course, people did not. And so our task here on KFUO is to take these well-written scholarly articles meant primarily for pastors and help the laity to understand, because this does a great job. I've often said theology is the art of making distinctions. And so as soon as I read this article, I contacted Wes. Uh, He read it. And what was your initial uh, reaction, Wes? I would agree with you on the formal and causative and things like that. We needed to break them down. But I really like the way that he broke down it down in a in a very concise illustration. You remember that? The gospel centered road? Yes. Which which particular because he used a number of them. Well the one I, I really latched on to kind of reminds me of Back when I was learning how to drive, my grandfather took many of his grandkids out out onto a dirt uh, rural road in Nebraska, uh-huh. and he'd, he'd have us get in. And, of course, we'd go into the ditch on the right, go into the ditch on the left, and then he put it back in the roadway, and he says, now you know where the ditches are. Yes. Let's, let's aim for the center of the road. And that's what Seleska talks about. He talks about a gospel reductionism on one one hand and fundamentalism on the other hand. And that Lutheran theology, the gospel-centered road is right in the center down the middle. So you're saying the two ditches are, on the one hand, gospel reductionism, and the other ditch is fundamentalism. Right, right. That's what he calls them. That's excellent. Uh, very, very good analogy. I really experienced gospel reductionism when I was at the seminary. That was prior to many of the seminary professors walking off campus because uh, many of them were gospel reductionism, uh, reductionists. Now, what do we mean by that? As he explains, 
For them, the only critical item in the Bible is the gospel, and that was that Jesus died and that he rose. But many of the historical events in the Bible were therefore considered either not to be true or part of a myth, and they weren't necessary to be believed. And so I had professors that did not believe in the crossing of the Red Sea as taught by the Bible, did not believe in six-day, 24-hour creation, uh, did not believe that there was a, a devil or a hell. And these were professors at the seminary. And they also had uh, a few of them an immoral lifestyle. One got arrested mm-hmm. for homosexual activity in South St. Louis. So... This is gospel reductionism, where the only thing that's important in the Bible is the gospel. Anything else is up for grabs. Right, and, and uh, I caught it in one of the footnotes that the, that Celeste uh, uh, had put down there that he had talked to Professor Nagel, and uh, they came up with the question, who decides what is norm for the gospel? I mean, who decides then at that if you, if, if you take away all the other parts of the scripture? Yes, uh, Professor Nagel recently died, an excellent professor. I had him for a class on the Lord's Supper, and it was one of the best classes I ever had. That's what he had done his doctorate on. And, in fact, in this Concordia Journal, they have two articles uh, featuring uh, Norman Nagel. One is entitled, He Was a Gift, and that was by Robert Kolb. And the other one is Remembering Norman Nagel, and many of us do, because he had a specific way of teaching, and that was by Joel Leyenbauer. So those also appear in this Concordia journal. So he calls it a form of uh, biblicism, um, And then fundamentalism is different than gospel reductionism. How would you describe what he talks about when he's dealing with biblicism or fundamentalism? Well, it it seems like one of their keys is is that you have to believe in the inspiration and infallibility of of Scripture, and that becomes the, the catchphrase of fundamentalism, they have other items that they they talk about, but it seems that it rose out of um, the early 1900s when uh, they were dealing with Darwinism and evolution, and their answer was inerrancy and fallibility. The problem that, uh, as Seleska points out, is doctrine becomes the faith article and not the gospel itself. Yes. In in fact, um, the way he puts it, which I really like, is they were trying to find the fundamentals of the faith. And and therefore, you pointed out inspiration, infallibility or inerrancy of the scripture, deity of Christ, Jesus' virgin birth and miracles, and his physical resurrection and personal return. So they were looking at the historical events of the Bible. And we've often made a distinction between faith that is historical versus faith that is saving. The difference is there were no Pharisees 
who did not believe in the history of the Old Testament. They believed in six-day, 24-hour creation. They believed there was a David and that there was a, a Solomon, that these people all existed in Abraham. But that doesn't save anybody. What saves mm-hmm. you are the promises connected to the historical events. And so... In my doctorate, Wes, I had read 110 catechisms, and I divided them into two areas. The one area was like Luther, where you began with law, the Ten Commandments, moved to the gospel, the creed. But the other group tried to prove the truthfulness of the Bible, And they thought if you could prove to somebody that the Bible is inerrant or inspired, then it'll be easier for them to believe in Jesus Christ. And what were they forgetting? About about human beings. (laughs) That we are born into sin, that we're a sinful plot to begin with. Our reasoning is is, uh, corrupted. In fact, I think this is a really good article uh, to be used against evidential apologetics, where there are some, even within our synod, who think that if you can prove the historicity of the Bible, that makes it easier for somebody to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And... You can believe all the history you want of the Bible if you deny the promises that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for your sins, then you're still not saved, even if you believe he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and, and so forth, like the, like the Pharisees did. They believe he died right. on the cross. They were there. They believe he rose well, from the dead. They paid the soldiers to lie about it. Right. I think he also makes a really good statement when he says faith is a gift of God, not something that a person can be reasoned into. Oh, yes. In in fact, to back that up, he says, we trust the scriptures as God's word, even without proof of their accuracy. I I Mm. really found that in Luther's Bondage of the Will. Because Erasmus kept coming back to him, well, then why does God choose some and not others if it isn't on the basis of your free will where you make a choice? And Luther said, who are we to go into the mind of God and figure out why? And, And that's why sermons, though they sometimes will explain a text, the main purpose of a sermon is not to explain and give an interpretation, but rather to reveal what God has said. And the Holy Spirit will convince individuals by means of hearing the word that, therefore, this is true. Right. Uh, and another aspect to, to that whole fundamentalism, too, that that uh, I found rather interesting, besides what you talked about, the heuristicity of, of uh, problems that we do in there, is if people who treat the Bible as some kind of text for scientific uh, opinions, philosophies, 
politics, economics, how to grow rich in stocks and things of that through the Bible. That that's not what the Bible was put there for. That that's well said. Yes, yeah, he's got a, a really good thing here, and uh, they they mention it now all the time when I'm on issues, etc. Doing the Sunday school lesson that they say that Pastor Baker for almost 30 years met with his Sunday school teachers prior to their teaching the lesson. And the point I did, the reason for that, is that I was always asking the question, where in the text is Jesus? Because until you can find Jesus, you do not understand why God put that passage in the Bible. Right, and that's the center of the road that, that Seleska's talking about, is is how do we proclaim Jesus as the one who creates faith? How do we read the scriptures in light of Christ? Yes, he says, suffice it to say that the gospel, the main theme of the scriptures, should always condition our reading of the various books and texts of which the scriptures are comprised. If it does not, our understanding of how the scriptures should be read and applied will drastically change. Law and gospel will get confused, and our understanding of redemption and salvation will be distorted. And you and I know what he's talking about. There there were professors where it talks about that the Christ is going to be born of a virgin, that they try and change the word virgin to young woman and say that it's some historical event that occurred at the time that was written in the Old Testament. And once more, they take their eyes off Jesus and put reason in front of clear scriptures. Right. He he also brings up uh, about... uh, Luke chapter 24, where they open their minds to understand the scriptures. And you've often referred to that, too. You know, the road to Emmaus with the disciples. Yes. How how they opened up their minds and the disciples, how he opened up their minds that these things, it's all in light of the, these things must happen. You know, his crucifixion, his suffering, his death, and things of that nature. And Jesus did not use evidence to prove that. He used Old Testament passages from Genesis through Malachi, which reminds me of another statement made. Faith is a gift of God, not something a person can be reasoned into. Into. Boy, is that ever a a good insight. This is one of the first articles that I see can be used against evidential apologetics. Uh, both from a fundamentalist point of view and also from what he calls this gospel reductionist, uh, or he calls it gospelism, that nothing is important as the gospel, and therefore everything else can be kind of given up. And, for example, when they interviewed the professors uh, prior to their being removed from the seminary, uh, I, I remember it was Paul Zimmerman's, uh, group that interviewed them, and then they were transcribed. Uh, I even remember the page numbers. Uh, on one page, a professor said, yes, God looked and he saw two monkeys, and he chose one to be Adam and one to be Eve. Hmm. 
And, and oh then my. they also talked about that at the crossing of the Red Sea, and I was taught this in class, that the Israelites went over on boats. It was a reed sea. It wasn't that deep at all, but it was still about a foot deep so that the Egyptians with their chariots sunk into the mud. And I remember I kind of got the professor angry because I put my hand up. I said, isn't that amazing that all of the Egyptian soldiers drowned in one foot of water? (laughs) Well, I even heard a story once that the Israelites knew where the stones were to to walk across. Oh, my. The Egyptians didn't. (laughs) No, there, there were... Every miracle, uh, for example, changing water into wine, we were taught that one of the options is that the servants who went out with the water were actually the disciples of Jesus, and they filled it with wine and brought it back in. And then another one we were told, the feeding of the 5,000. Well, these people were going out to see Jesus, so everybody kind of brought a lunch. And they had it under their robes. And when the little boy gave his bread and fish, then they brought out all their lunches and were able to feed everybody. So every miracle had an option. Now, one of the things that uh, Jim Belts and I, uh, he was my best friend there and helped write a letter to the president of the Senate about what was being taught we were trying to figure out which professor would we remove, and we couldn't think of any because we weren't sure what any one professor believed. And therefore, when I wrote this book, Watershed at the Rivergate, talking about what we were being taught, I put in there my theory of what I call the allowability factor. You could go to a professor and ask, You know, I'm not really interested in what you personally believe, but would you allow a professor to remain as a professor if he believed in evolution rather than Genesis 1 creation? And they would say yes. So you still Mm. didn't know what they personally believed, but they would allow these other beliefs. And that was... The reason why the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in convention declared that this was doctrine not to be tolerated in the Church of God, and it was primarily because of the allowability factor. And that comes down to, again, to to Nagel's question that, that was in the footnotes, who decides what is the norm for the gospel? Yes, and when you say norm, you're saying what? How do we understand well, the word norm? Uh, the, the you know what what is the logical choice or the uh, um, I'm kind of tongue tied here right now. Well, is it not what is the source that source, you're looking source. to? Yes, right. That becomes my norm. For example, if uh, I'm out. Uh, say at the dance, I say, I have to be home by 10 o'clock. They'll say, well, who told you that? Well, who's my norm? My parents. <laughs> Your parents. <laughs> That's right. They said be home by 10 because if I'm not, I may not get the car the following week. So the norm is that which you look to 
for knowing what is true, but knowing what saves according to the norm is the message of the gospel. gospel. But that doesn't mean we can deny all the history of Scripture. No, that's all true also. It's just that by believing it doesn't save anybody. But it sure helps in understanding. I'm sure what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, he gave the reasons why he had to die on the cross. Like Isaiah 53, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his stripes we are healed. And so you can use the Old Testament to explain why the historical events of the New Testament took place. Or like Seleska says, scriptures bear witness to Jesus and make people wise to salvation through Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Well said. Yes, because the only way, and there's so many people don't understand this, the only means that the Holy Spirit uses to convert someone is not reason or our intellect or evidence or fundamental teachings of the Bible. It's the message of the gospel, what Jesus has done. Right. In Corinthians, Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes. And then there's that Corinthians passage that says the unbeliever cannot possibly fathom the meaning of the gospel as the third article of the Apostles' Creed by Luther. Remember, we cannot by our own reason or strength. Our own reason or strength, yes. John 5, when Jesus is talking to them, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. I mean, he points out that, and as we've been discussing here, that they're there to... The scriptures are there to tell us about the life of Jesus and his his goal of, of dying upon the cross for us. Yes. Yeah, this Concordia Journal has got a lot of good stuff in it. Oh, um, great. Yeah, the President Dale Meyer has an article on preaching politics and cautions us in that area. Then we have the both the Norman Nagel and Victor Raj, also a professor who died. William Schumacher has a great article mm-hmm. on that. And um, the, the very last page has an ad for the new Concordia Commentary volume by James Veltz. That was my best friend at the seminary. And it's by uh, Rick Watts, who writes, and he's out of Vancouver. This is a first a commentary whose primary focus is the significance of the syntax and structure of the Greek text. Insightful, at times helpfully provocative, and always stimulating, this volume is guaranteed a spot within easy reach of my shelf, a must for all serious students and readers of Mark. And this is actually the second volume that Dr. Veltz has done on the gospel according to Mark. And so we'd encourage you to contact CPH to get a copy at 1-800-325-3040. Do you have any of the commentaries that they're selling? 
Uh, I got the Corinthians one, and I yeah. also picked up uh, Matthew and Luke. I got a good deal mm-hmm. about three years ago. Now, they haven't finished the commentary, so they're still working right. on them. But they had them on CD. Mm. And I bought them. And what's so beautiful, you can put in the word baptism, and it will show you every place in the commentary where they talk about baptism. Now, I have, uh, I have Luther's works. Oh, yes. I've written, and also you can get them on CD. Yes, you can. And now they got, I think, 12 more volumes they're coming out with. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And, That's uh, great. Yeah. One of them is a continuation of the Heidelberg Disputation because I believe they only did originally 25 theses, and then Luther has some philosophical ones that I'm sure we're going to find interesting. But I, I believe that um, this was a great article, and you can phone Concordia Seminary in St. Louis and request a copy of the Concordia Journal. I'm not sure what we're going to do next week, but I'm sure we'll find something. Right, Wes? Right. Yep. All right. Yep. Thanks so much for being with me. Today I'm Tom Baker, Wes Reimnitz. Tomorrow is Open Mic Friday to answer your questions, if possible. Till then, God bless. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.